Oh, Father, we thank you for the, the peace that you offer to us in Jesus Christ. That his death and resurrection gives us the opportunity to be at peace with you, peace within ourselves, and even peace with one another. God, your word calls it a peace that passes all understanding. And if we were to look at it in the Hebrew, the shalom, it's not just a calmness of heart, but a wholeness as we find ourselves in you. And so we seek that today. God, we, we just want to hear your voice. We want to draw closer to you. We want your peace. We want your strength. We want understanding of the things in your word that you want us to know and to hear and to apply to our lives. And I pray, God, as, as we approach your throne with boldness and expectation, that we would hear from you. And that in all things, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name. So we're going to read the text of Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. I'll get us all up to speed a little bit, and then we'll dive in. You ready? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you, and again I will put my trust in him, and again here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So much in here. I'm very excited. I hope you are too. Two weeks ago, and when we were in chapter 1, we looked at the various ways that Jesus is better than the angels. Some of those things included that the fact that Jesus is to be worshipped as he is the Son of God, that Jesus gets the throne 
and none of the angels will get a throne, that Jesus is the unchanging, eternal creator. All of these things mean that Jesus is better than the angels. After part one of Jesus being better than the angels, we spent last week looking at the first four verses of chapter two, uh, where we looked at our great salvation and the need to be intentional in our relationship with God so that we do not slip away. Now we come back to the second part of why Jesus is better than the angels. And so we start in the first four verses, the fact that all things are put in subjection to him. So we'll read verse five through nine again. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So, God did not put the world to come. This, of course, is speaking of the new heavens and the new earth that we will get to experience in eternity. He did not put that new world under subjection to the angels, as was stated by the psalmist in Psalm 8, 4 through 6. Instead, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, that's a messianic term for Jesus that appears uh, in the book of Ezekiel, uh, the book of Daniel, several other places throughout the Old Testament. Um, it's actually used in quite a bit in the book of Luke, too. Uh, he, did, he was made a little lower than the angels, and some translations actually add, and it should be in there because the Greek speaks to this, um, for a little while. Right? So him being made lower than the angels was temporary. That speaks of him coming to earth as a human being. Then he was crowned with glory and honor and set over the works of God's hand. And God put all things in subjection to him. And Paul explains this to us. So, and just for those of you who weren't here week one, Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I've been teased about how long I took trying to prove that that week. So you'll have to go back and listen to it. I'm not going to do it again. But often I will refer to Paul as the author of Hebrews because he wrote it, uh, <laughs> under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he has left nothing that is not put under him. And you know I'm fond of saying that whenever we see the word all, you know what it means? Well, it means all. When it says he put all things in subjection to Jesus, that means everything is subordinate to him. Everything is subdued by him. Everything is under obedience to him, to our king, and there is nothing that is left out. 1 Peter 3.22 tells us, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. 1 Corinthians 15.28 takes it a step further. Then, when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. 
So yes, everything is put into subjection under Jesus Christ, and then Jesus willingly puts himself under his Father. And, and we talk about this hierarchy within the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? The Father is supreme, Jesus is over everything, the Holy Spirit is next. Doesn't mean that any part of the Trinity is less God than any other part. God tells us in 1 Corinthians that he's a God of order. He really likes order, bless you. It makes him so happy. Right? God loves order. And if you look at the world around you, he created order in the family. He created order in the church. He created order in nature because he's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. The next part says, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. You know, we read in the Bible here, everything is put in subjection to Jesus Christ. And then watch the news for about 30 seconds. And what are you going to think? Well, it sure doesn't look like everything's been put under subjection to him. Well, everything has. We just don't see it yet. The fact that Jesus has purchased the world, including us, to himself, however, we don't see the fullness of this yet. But let me be encouraging. We will. It's coming. Hopefully sooner rather than later. But... But it's coming. And one day, all the stuff that we just, you know, Lord, I don't understand this, or why did that happen, or why did we go through, oh, one day we're going to be like, oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> I see what you were doing. That makes sense. I'm, I'm glad you didn't answer maybe that particular prayer, or I'm glad you didn't, you know, indulge me when I really wanted to do this, that, or the other thing, or, right, well, we'll eventually God will show up. And it'll all make sense. And until then, well, he asks us to trust him. I know, it's not always easy, but it's what we're called to do. And then we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a time, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So Jesus was temporarily made a little lower than the angels. When he took on human flesh, and we're going to talk more about that in a bit. He did this so he could suffer death on our behalf. And what happened after he suffered death for us? Well, three days later, he rose from the grave and was crowned with glory and honor, exalted to the right hand of God 40 days after that, 37 days. And now he sits at the right hand of God, all by the grace of our Father. 1 Peter 3.18 says something very similar. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just, that's him, for the unjust, that's us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And we're going to spend some more time on that, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But this is... Another reason Jesus is greater than the angels. Everything is put under subjection to him. Well, and he died for us and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father. The angels don't get any of that. Angels are cool. We talked about that the first time, but they ain't that cool. Verse 10. 
So then he goes on, for it is a fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Jesus is, oh, there's just so much in these three verses. I could have just done this this week. Jesus is the one for whom all things were created. So think about that for a moment. And by whom all things were created. So God the Father used the Son as the agent of creation. Get into Genesis 1 and John 1, and, and that makes a lot of sense. But not only was he the one who was the agent of creation, all things were created by him, but it was all created for him. God, everything you see, the people that you see next to you, the, the glorious things we see around us because we live in, okay, I think it's the most beautiful place in the continental United States, maybe one of the most beautiful places in the world. And if you disagree, anybody who may be listening, you've just never been to Genesis. Um, all of this, not just by him, but for him, including you and I. And it was fitting, suitable or proper, for him as the captain of our salvation. The word for captain there means the author of our salvation or the prince of our salvation, both of which we could spend a lot of time getting into because we're going to talk about him as the author a little bit later on in Hebrews. I think it's in chapter 12. We could go back to the book of Daniel where he's called the Mashiach Nagid. Forgive my Hebrew, it's awful. Um, but that literally means Messiah the Prince or Messiah the King. He is the anointed prince who came to save us. I mean, there's so much in there. I highly encourage you to spend some time there. Uh, but it was fitting for the author of our salvation in order to bring us to glory. He's crowned with glory and honor, but he wants to bring us there with him. Remember back to chapter 1, he's the heir of all things. And then Romans chapter 8, we are joint heirs with him. If he gets glory and honor, his death and resurrection brings us glory and honor. That is so unfair to him and so awesome for us. I've said it so many times. This is the worst deal in history for him. He took our sin to give us his righteousness. He became a human being, lowered himself to do that, so that he could elevate us to become children of God. He suffered humiliation so he could bring us to glory. Bad deal for him. Great deal for us. All because of his love. But it was suitable for him to do this, to suffer, and the word there means to accomplish or consummate our salvation. And this was the only way our salvation could be accomplished. Jesus had to die as our perfect substitutionary sacrifice. He paid the penalty for our sins in his own body, and then he rose again so we could be saved by believing in him. And he told us there is no other way for this to happen. There is no other way. 
In John chapter 14, the disciples said, show us the way to the Father. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is no other way. When he was in the garden, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Part of that prayer was meant to show us that there was no other way. Because if there was another way, then God would have let that cup pass. But there was no other way. Jesus had to go through that suffering so that we could be saved. Others people out there, they want you to believe there's other ways. Right? If you hug the right tree, maybe you'll get to heaven. I love trees, but I ain't going to worship any of them. You know, if the Hare Krishnas say, if you recite the name of Hare Krishna a hundred times, then you get to go to heaven. You're going to need a shovel to believe that one. Then you have other guys like Siddhartha Gautama. We call him Buddha, right? He was the Buddha. And when they asked him, what's the ultimate meaning to life? He says, I have no idea. That was his response. He told people not to follow him because he didn't know where he was going. And yet there's a worldwide religion about it. Then you can go to places where there's, there's Hinduism. 300 million. Consider that number. 300 million false gods are part of Hinduism. Now, they've got some big ones, and they've got a lot of real little ones. 300 million. And every single one of them tells you, eh, you might go somewhere better, you might not. We're not sure. Muhammad's dead. Buddha's dead. Confucius is dead. Um, the, the, the people who began Hinduism, they're all dead. And all of them said they didn't have the real answer. Or they weren't, at the very least, they weren't sure. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You want to come to the Father? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus told us, that our Father loved us so much that he sent him that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I'm going to keep preaching the gospel because it's going to keep being true. And there is no other way. Did I make that point? All right, we're good. Okay. First Peter adds, First Peter 2, 21 through 25, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And he goes on, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, 
for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. What an amazing gift. And I've said this so many times. It would just be enough to not spend eternity in hell. That would be enough. That would be enough salvation and gift. But he goes so far beyond that because here he calls us brethren. We are his family. As those who have been adopted into the family of God, 1 John 3, 1 through 4 talks about that. And this is not because we have been, not only because we've been adopted into the family of God, but because we are one in Christ. Consider this statement. He is the one who sanctifies us. He sets us apart from the world, sets us apart to be holy, sets us apart to serve him. And we are the ones being sanctified. And we are one. Both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Take a moment to absorb the fact that as followers of Christ, we are one with him. We are one in him. Galatians 3.28 reminds us there is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. You know, and there's some people in the world that try to use that verse to justify transgenderism. That's not what it means. Throwing it out there. Just saying, what it means is God doesn't look at the color of your skin. He doesn't look at your gender. He doesn't look at your background. He doesn't look at your ethnicity. He doesn't care. When you come to Christ, you do the same. That's what it means. Ephesians 1.10 says, In the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And then, of course, Paul supports this with the Old Testament scriptures, uh, quoted from Psalm 22.22 and Isaiah 8.17 and 18. Just so much. And then he comes back to the theme of Jesus sharing our shame in verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Again, Verse 5 through 18 is one message in my mind. I was very tempted to break it up over three weeks. Um, there's just so much. So it starts with the fact that Jesus took on flesh and blood. Because we were flesh and blood. He did this so he could taste death, so we could be freed from it. He is our faithful and merciful high priest who became a human being to die for us, suffer for us, and endure temptation, all so he could help us. And he did this for you and I, but not for the angels. So let's unpack it. And as much as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he likewise, he himself likewise 
shared in the same. So we're flesh and blood. So Jesus took on flesh and blood so he could save us. John 1.14 reminds us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians 2, 5 and 11 reminds us that Jesus did this in humility, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men in order to save us and has been exalted as the result. Throughout scripture, especially in the book of Galatians and several other places, we are reminded and, and taught that if somebody says Jesus did not come in the flesh, which was a popular false teaching in the early, that was Surrounding the early church, it was known as Gnosticism. It was a terrible teaching. Uh, you could spend a little time looking into it if you're interested. Uh, but basically, they taught that Jesus was never a human being, that he was a spirit. And so he didn't actually die for our sins. It was symbolic. Terrible, terrible teaching. So they taught in the New Testament, in multiple places, uh-uh. If somebody tells you Jesus didn't come in the flesh, they're wrong. Right? Jesus did come in the flesh. He had to come in the flesh in order to save us. And that's what the next part says, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, before the resurrection of Christ, I think most people were simply afraid of death. It is only through his death and resurrection that death should no longer make us who believe in Jesus afraid. We've had this discussion several times. Anybody remember the pandemic? <laughs> right, a few of us? Did that happen, right? Um, which one? Yeah, the Spanish flu, 1917. No, I'm joking. Does anybody remember that? Good, thank you. Uh, I was like, if you remember that, awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's just what I was going to say. There's a, there's a few gray heads in here, but I don't think any of them are quite, quite got that much time under their belts. Um, that's part of the reason I shaved my head, because I would look a little older if I didn't. Um, but we all remember the pandemic. And we've had multiple conversations. The media used fear. The government used fear. Um, everybody used fear. And, and, you know, and, and please don't take this the wrong way. If you've gotten the vaccine, I'm not judging you. If you haven't gotten the vaccine, I'm not judging you. If you wore a mask, I'm not going to judge you. If you didn't wear a mask, I'm not going to judge you. That's not the point I'm making. But look at what happened to the world in a very short period of time because people were afraid to die. Look at what happened. Economies around the world crumbled. People, billions of people got masks and wore them everywhere. Billions of people couldn't leave their homes. There were countries, we, we have friends in the Philippines, there were countries where people were being shot by the police for leaving their home when it, when it wasn't their appointed time. Look at what happened to the world because oh, it just became the devil's playground. He just made everybody afraid. Now I'm odd. A little bit. I was like, I want to find somebody who's got COVID and give them a big hug and have them sneeze in my face so I can get over with it. That was my goal. And eventually I did get it, and I was fine. Um, everybody in our house got it except my wife because she has some kind of superhuman immune system. Uh, that's from being a teacher, I think. Um, you know, she, you, could, you could just inject her with stuff, and her body would be like, uh-uh. 
I don't know how it works, but the world was afraid of dying. And people did die. Right? I'm not trying to discount that. People did die. People die every day. I can't remember, it's, what is it, like every eight seconds to every ten seconds? Somewhere, someone on earth, someone dies. Now, that should give us pause about what we're called to do that we're going to get to in a bit. But I'm not afraid of dying. I love my life. I love my job. I love you all. I love my family. I love the thing God, things that God allows me to do, the things that God has called me to do. I love pickleball. I'm sure there will be pickleball in heaven. Right? We're going to have our own cloud. And, and there's gonna, it's going to be great. Never, yeah, yeah, well, maybe not. Well, you know, yeah. Uh, there's not going to be, there's no sin in heaven, right? We won't make any mistakes while we play pickleball, so we're not tempted to. Uh, <clears throat> anyways, right? I'm just saying, it's going to be awesome. And I love my life, and I love where I live, and I love so much about it. And I can't wait to die. I can't wait for Jesus to come get me. I can't wait. Because this life, as great as it is, like there's still some bad stuff about it. I, I groan when I get up. I don't look that old, but I'm that fat. Because I do. My kids tease me. I've been sitting on the couch for a while. Ah, oh, Dad, what? Got bad knees, bad back. I can't wait till that stuff doesn't hurt anymore. I can't wait till. Uh, I, I, you know, the dryer stops shrinking my clothes. <laughs> I, I, we rent, so I can't complain about the dryer was free. But I tell you what, it has done something to a few of my clothes over the last two years. Or it could be my wife's fault. I'm not sure. But whatever the case, you know, the world fears death because they don't have hope. We have hope. The world fears death because death seems like a defeat. But for the follower of Christ, death is victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57 says, So, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, it meant victory for us. When he rose from the grave, that victory was confirmed. And when I finally put off this tent, however it happens, maybe I'll grow old and, and you know, die peacefully in my sleep. Maybe I'll be walking along in Gunnison, looking at my cell phone and step out in front of a bus. You never know how it's going to happen, but one way or the other, it's going to happen. And my last breath here will be my first breath there. And I won't care. I love you all. I don't even think I'm going to miss you. Because <laughs> you're going to join me eventually, and off we'll go, and we'll play pickleball, and we'll eat chicken fried steak, and we'll hang out with Jesus, and it'll be great. I'm starting because you all know I have theories about heaven that aren't in the Bible. One of them, and this comes from a TV show, I think there's going to be a cloud where there's a milkshake-like pond. 
You need to scoop your cup in and have I'm just saying, for all those who are lactose intolerant, how great will that be? Uh, I just can't. It's going to be awesome. He goes on and says, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So the angels have a different relationship with God than we do. So Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't apply to them. It does apply to us because we are the seed of Abraham. Uh, Romans 4.13 tells us that those who believe in Jesus by faith are the seed of Abraham. And he goes on, so therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that's us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So because of everything we've looked at today, Jesus had to be made like us. So he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before our father. And as our high priest, he represents us before the throne of God. The Bible tells us in Romans 8 that he makes intercession for us. So does the Holy Spirit. It's pretty awesome. And he also represents God to us. He is the perfect representation of who God is. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this comment of him being a faithful and merciful high priest because we're going to spend a couple chapters on it when we get a little later into the book of Hebrews. So we'll spend more time on it there. But he is our high priest. He is the propitiation for our sins, the substitutionary sacrifice that allowed us to be reconciled to God. That's what propitiation means. It's a fancy word. That he was the substitutionary sacrifice that allows us to be reconciled to God. And he did this because of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 tells us, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this passage ends with, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus went through all of this just to help. He suffered so we wouldn't have to. He endured temptation without sin, according to Hebrews 4.15, so that he could help us and give us a way to escape when we are, when we are tempted. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that. He did all of this for us without hesitation, with joy, according to Hebrews 12.2, so we could be saved adopted into his family, set apart for his service so that we could have hope for eternity and freedom from death and the fear of death because he conquered sin and death for us. What glorious truth. What an amazing grace this is to each of us. As we close, I cannot help but revel and glory in the truth we've studied today. All things are in subjection to our king. Jesus, who accomplished our salvation through his suffering, 
making us one with him. The one who sanctifies us, taking on flesh just so he could save us and help us and make us his own. Jesus, our merciful and faithful high priest before God, he did all of this for us and it was his joy to do. To do. How could we not respond to so great a salvation? It has been purchased for us and offered to us for free through the grace of God and the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were warned at the beginning of this chapter that we talked last week to not neglect this salvation, but to respond to it. If there's anybody listening, either in this room or online, who has never responded for the very first time and been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, now's a good time. Always a good time. You can talk to me afterwards or someone else or send us a message or leave us a comment. We would love to talk with you about that. But Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the grave. And when we believe in him, we're saved. Oh, so good. Now what about the rest of us? What about those of us who have responded to Christ, or maybe those of us who have been responding to Christ for a long time. For those of us who are saved by the blood of Jesus, we must respond to it in every moment of every day of our lives. This is not so we can get saved over and over again. This is not so we can in some way earn or keep our salvation. That has all been done for us. But we do this in admiration and worship and obedience and service to our great God and Savior. And so I do this every week. All right, what do we take home? Well, we should take all of it home in some way, shape, or form. Right? Hide all of this in your heart and understand who you are in Christ. But I really think I came back to a scripture we talked about just a few minutes ago in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Because here's the reality. God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And now he has given to us, committed to us, the word of reconciliation. God has made us ambassadors in this world for his son, Jesus, and he is pleading through us with the world around us to be reconciled to himself through his son. And there are three ways this has worked out in our lives. First, by how we live. We should all be living a life that honors God and testifies to his grace and salvation. People should look at us and go, hey, something different. That's sanctification. Second, by our words. We are called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, you know, there's a famous saying out there, you know, share the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's necessary to use words. Right? You can share the gospel. People can see you living a life that honors God, and that's, we're supposed to be the salt and light that makes them go, hmm, I want what they got. But at some point in time, you've got to tell people Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that he rose from the grave because Romans 10, 17 tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we do it by our lives. We do it by our words. And third, we do it by how we serve. One of the most powerful examples of the love of Christ that we can display as his ambassadors is in our service A lot of people say, well, I just don't always have the opportunity to share the gospel. Are you serving your neighbor? Are you serving a coworker? 
argue, I always bring up that poor cashier at Walmart. Are you serving the cashier at Walmart? Because when you do, and when they see it, God will open the door and share. I, I guarantee that. He wants them saved more than we do. So are we living a life of holiness that honors God? Are we sharing the gospel with those around us as God presents us with opportunities? Are we serving each other and our community as a demonstration of the love of Christ? I'm not saying all this to make you feel guilty. I'm not saying all this so you go, oh man, I'm having a hard time. No, just be intentional about it. Find out what God wants you to do and go do it. It's pretty cool. Tell you what, I love that I know what I'm called to do and I love that I have the opportunity to do it. There are few things in the world that compare with what I've been doing for the last hour and a half. A few things. I want that for you. God wants that for you. And if you need help with it, now well, we're working on that. But come and talk to me or one of our elders. We would love to help you with that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fullness and richness of your scriptures. Thank you for what you teach us, for what you share with us, for what you want us to know and understand, and that your Holy Spirit leads us into these truths and helps us to hear your voice. I pray, Father, that you would help us take it home. I pray as we move into the rest of our day and the rest of our week that you would just fill us with your grace and your power and help us to see you and hear you follow you and honor you. And that it would all be for your glory. In Jesus' name.